I'm Erica Lynn, and we all know the ocean is the most demanding environment on Earth, consistently testing the reliability and durability of our equipment. When you spend as much time fishing as I do, you know that reliable gear is essential for staying on the water. This is why I went with Abyss Battery to power my trolling motor, electronics, and outboard. The guys at Abyss Battery are rattling the saltwater industry by manufacturing performance marine batteries specifically designed for sonar, outboards, trolling motors, and electronic fishing reels. They're also Bluetooth compatible, so I found Checking battery statuses right on your phone while you're out on the water is a huge game changer. To learn more about why Abyss batteries are used by the pros and factory installed by Premier Boat Builders, visit abyssbattery.com. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I sit down with my guests to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Tommy Lynch is the first person who comes to my mind when I think about night fishing for huge brown trout. Having guided for over 20 years in Michigan, Tommy has earned a reputation for being one of the fishiest guys in the area. In this episode of Anchored, I sit down with him to discuss the ins and outs of night fishing and learn some other fun facts along the way. I wanted to take a moment to also let you know that after taking nearly a decade's break from hosting trips, I'm back at it this July in Montana with Kelly Gallup's Slide-In. This is a members-only trip, but there's still space if you would like to sign up to grab a spot. Find out more by emailing me at info at anchoredoutdoors.com, and I hope to see you soon. Let's start. Okay. Where were you born and raised? Born and raised southeastern Michigan. Uh, yeah, uh, my father is a funeral director, a, 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 a kind of a famous poet and writer. Um, he's uh, He lives up north here in Michigan, and, and I'm kind of the black sheep of the family. I was supposed to be a funeral director if I was playing by the rules. But, uh, yeah, no, I got into fishing when I was seven up here, and my dad said it just got worse when I got a driver's license up. So. I read your bio on your website last night and I saw the funeral director bit and I, I thought you were joking. Oh, the funeral. No, no, no. My whole family's been, uh, that's, that was, you know, Lynch and son's funeral homes. It's all over Southeast Michigan. And yeah, I, I kind of, I was on my way to being a funeral director and yeah, I suppose if I didn't know fishing. I'd have been a great funeral director. The problem is I, I kind of got into the fly fishing and it bit me really bad. Yeah, so. right. Okay. So did, did your dad or does your dad fly fish? Oh yeah. Yeah. No, he's, he, he got me into fishing when I was like, I, I wasn't filling a pair of waders yet. Um, and, uh, yeah, we didn't really stop. I mean, it was, you know, whenever the fish or the hatch was going, we were always kind of involved and, and, uh, you know, I think I was 22. I did a, a tour up in Alaska being a fishing guide up there. And, 
you know, I love going out West and, you know, mixing with some of my buddies over there, but, uh, yeah, I pitched a tent on the PM. I love the year roundness of this river. The fact that you can kind of fish year round and the seasons change with the technique. So keeps, uh, keeps the guy busy. <laughs> okay. So tell me about getting into fly fishing. How did the whole thing start? Uh, I would say it was, I think it was after you get bored of catching fish, you didn't get bored. You were just fine with catching fish on like lures and spawn and all that stuff. But once it wasn't about catching the fish so much as how you caught the fish, that's, that's kind of the deep dive into the fly fishing end of it. You know, it was, uh, it was never hard to keep doing this. And I remember when I sold all my gear stuff, when I was still mixing, you know, a little bit of spin and fly when I was very young and I was 16 or 17, I caught a big old brown trout on a rapella. And it was after a day we were on the Pine River just north of here and we smashed them on streamers that day. It was after a thunderstorm and we just, we just lit them up. And I should have had uh, some more faith in my back pocket that following day because we went a couple of bends. I didn't catch something on the streamer. So I grabbed that rappella and I caught a big old brown trout. And the moment it ate it to the moment it hit the net, I was just like, man, that would have just been better on a fly. And uh, that's the next day I sold all my shit or the conventional stuff. And uh, yeah, it's, it, it hasn't really been anything else, but I don't hunt. I don't, I don't bowl. <laughs> I, uh, I, I tie, I fish, and I hang out with my boys and babe. That's about it. Okay, so wait a second. So how old were you with all, with all of this when you started fly fishing? Or just when you started fishing? I mean, did you start fishing, obviously, with your dad from an early, early age? Oh, yeah. Like, uh, I was two or three years old, and he had me in my, uh, my uh, uncle's pond in New York, and I caught a bass on a... I think it was like a little wooden popper and and yeah that whole mystery of getting a bite and coming up with something that you were unaware of that was like unwrapping christmas presents every time you did it and uh yeah i mean it's uh the fly fishing came i think when i was 12 or 13 we started snagging the snamming and some of the steelhead in the spring which is a terrible terrible situation here in michigan um, I haven't partaked in that type of guiding or promotion in a dozen or 15 years now, but it, it is a problem, but we got off of that really easy. The hex hatch made that very possible. Hex hatch is, uh, you know, a very after hours thing, but it sorted out some fine browns. So can you, can you explain the whole snagging thing to people listening who have no idea what you're talking about? It's, uh, you know, it's I. You know, I've heard it referred to by a few people as Michigan's dirty little secret. And uh, you know, I take a lot of flack in town. In fact, you could argue that the better part of this town is, you know, they've got less than two cents for me on most of that, just because they all still take a dollar. And I and I don't really dog them for it, but I I would encourage any veteran guy that would consider themselves an actual teacher or steward of the watershed that if you know something is off whether or not it pays for the day of guiding or not, it still requires two showers a day to do the job. And so I quit doing it just because I felt dirty. And that was, I think it's been about 15 years since I've run one of those trips and I ran them for, I took money doing it. I still, I'm, I'm not clean of it, but we have these, you know, tight line techniques that have really 
kind of gotten away from the core of fly fishing in in my opinion over the you know it's it's kind of the dumbing down of the sport if you will and uh and we take out the cast the tapered fly line and and you're left with basically conventional approaches tipped with a fly reel and a fly at the end but to say you were fly fishing might be a reach and the practice as it's used here in Michigan away from any type of euro technique that's you know properly performed you know you've got guys here that are you know guides that tell their clients that a, a cast without a hook set is a wasted cast i mean what kind of what kind of uh example is that setting so are they fishing on top of uh, on top of uh reds or are they fishing on top of schools of fish or is it just every random cast? You should understand that we have a section of river called the Pier Marquette Flies Only. It's a blue ribbon catch and release. It's got, you know, nationally scenic. It's It's got about every hood ornament you can put on a, a section of river. And yet for four or five months of the year, a fly fisherman that's, you know, authentically trying to get a bite out there shouldn't or can't engage that body because it's been overrun by upwards i mean to give you an example they'll run a hundred boats through an eight mile section in a day this on top of the you know three to five hundred walk-ins that are milling around all practicing the same thing you, you couldn't find a tapered fly line in a flies only section on your on your best day in there during these seasons which is trad it's 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 uh i i i choose not to even see that section of river until it's over and it happens in the spring and in the fall. They do it to the salmon, um, both in the holes and the gravel. And the steelhead, they do them on the gravel because there's just not enough of them in the holes to do it. Yet they they still play a pretty good bump game these days with as many people that are kind of limited on, you know, their choice of water. So it's a bad scene, April. So is it is it the is it the technique? So is it the hook set? And I'll, I'll explain this in a second why I'm asking. Is it the hook set? the setup or just the simple act of snagging. And I ask because we have got something similar on the Fraser river. We call it flossing. And what you'll have is you'll have either really, you'll have your sink tip with a super long leader, or you'll have your bouncing Betty, which is a, you know, piece of lead um, with a super long leader. And as the fish are coming through the river, the line is so long. It's like this up, Mm-hmm. floating up in the water column as the fish are going through they obviously get flossed uh, as it pulls taut and it ends up in the side of the maxillary is that what's happening there or is it just simply snagging in the back and the oh, fins and well you should know for for the back nine of my snagging career when i was still in my early 20s um i mean i had flossing aka mouth hockey down to a rough science i used floating lines indicators i made it look pretty and i caught a thousand fish in the mouth and but to say that he ate it would be a reach because i know what a steelhead feels like when he takes a fly whether swan or nymphed you know you know the difference i mean you know and and for me to sit there and lie to my clients and tell them oh yeah he ate that even as we pull it off the the mandible the lip the you know oh it's inside the yeah that's all shady it's it's all mouth hockey and you're right they use the leaders to kind of dress it all up in Michigan, though, it's a little bit more dirty. And the reason being is, is, as I mentioned before, there are guides here that would tell you that a cast without a hook set is a wasted cast. That is so way off. And the COs do what they can here. 
the Michigan DNR really hasn't weighed in. Our our TU kind of keeps it at arm's reach just because of the monetary value that comes into some of these areas. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, my argument isn't uh, really on people fishing or the rivers getting more crowded because they are, you know. Um, and, and I can always fall back as I was for 10 years and real sour about them getting busier. But then I fall back on something even better, as, as I'm sure you know, is, you know, as good as the fishing may or may not be from this day to the next, people will never know how good these rivers fished before the, the parade showed up. And uh, so we've got that going for us. But for an ethical angler to come in, there was some guys from Montana. Um, I told them about the egg fishing behind the salmon, you know, for the brown trout. Because like in September, our pre-spawn bite coincides with our salmon spawning. These browns will get up behind these kings and just eat that caviar like Pac-Man. And, and you can see them do it. It's, it's pretty fantastic. Guys will go out there with a nine foot five weight, real light tippets and play the game. Um, the problem being is that person is not even allowed to access these sections of river now because there's guys out there with lanterns at four o'clock in the morning to pin stuff down so they can rip it to shreds. And, you know, so I think we've gotten to a tipping point where the technique with the population based upon the finite rivers that we're fishing, we're, 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 we got to, there's a reckoning that we need to kind of be involved in. And, and around here, like I said, there's so many people's business model that revolve around that, that, uh, that, uh, shady shit that, uh, pardon my French, but, uh, it is shady. No, that's right. It, it reminds me of sockeye season on the Fraser. It's a major moneymaker. So everyone does it, but yeah, it's, uh, it's great. But is it because the trout are mixed in with the salmon and salmon are typically seen as a harvestable, you know, a, a meat fishery? And so a lot of the mentality is not so much fair, just, you know, filling a bag. Yeah, I, I see where you're going with that. And, you know, the sockeye in, in Alaska, as, as I remember, they, they didn't eat squat. You could throw whatever you wanted at them and we, they just don't eat. They ate really well, meaning like we would take the Macons to make yeah. the cut. <laughs> So sockeyes were almost worth snagging, I guess, when I was a teenager. But, you know, you've got guys now that know what a bite is. They take, like, thunder sticks and skein, and they'll go to the bottom of the river, and they'll get an authentic bite. But that, that's gotten busy, too, now. Um, but I, I just think that the salmon and the steelhead bring such an element of – because the catch and release water of the flies only, they can't kill them. So these are guys dressed up in – $15,000 worth of Sims Sage and TNT. They dress up this beautiful able or hatch reel with monofilament. And then they go out there just for the hero shot. It's like, it's like they're all believing it in Santa Claus while they dress up for Halloween. It's, it's a little off, you know, they're not okay. fishermen anymore. If, if you're not getting a bite, it's not fishing. It's something else, but it's not fishing anymore. You can call it mouth hockey. You can call it bump fishing. You can call it snagging. But the act of fishing, I believe, is that compromise between you presenting something, whether it's a lure, bait, guts, gear, grenades, and they take it. That's the whole appeal of fishing. And I think that's been lost a little here in Michigan, just a wee bit, you know? So, you know, I was going to mention this later, but I'll bring it up now. You had mentioned that for, 
I think you said for 10 years, you were a little crusty about it and you're okay now. Did, did you find yourself go through any sort of roller coaster of emotions just as far as being a guide in the industry? Did you, did you go through a burnout stage at any point? I don't know if I've ever burned out. I've been a little overly passionate, I'd say, about some stuff. I've always wanted people to kind of see the light. Um, I would tell you that, you know, a lot of the cool techniques that are done here between, you know, some of the after hours mousing, the egging, um, even the floating lines for steelhead, which I almost lost my job for. Remember this. I almost lost my job with two outfitters because I wanted to teach people how to fly fish for steelhead, and none of the other guides were doing it. So they wanted to can. I don't understand. Because you wanted to do something different? or Yes. Uh, when I was in my early 20s and teens taking money to snag fish, seeing the wrong of it, with a baby on the way, just married, and, 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 and you know, you have these outfitters that are pushing you to take that trip. And I'm trying to convert these people into, hey, look, you can get these things to bite. Or we could go brown trout fishing, and they all bite. And and me teaching that that venue of against the grain, which is to say, take your April money, go down and park on a gravel and let them play, you know, mouth hockey with a dozen steelhead and feed them a lunch and get them off. Yeah, I don't, I don't really play that, that game anymore. So it's to say that I went through the roller coaster would be fair. I mean, but, but I've gotten to the point where I've, I just, I'd, I'd rather not engage it. It's like, why change their mind to what end? You know, it's like, I'm trying to, make these people see the wrong of it all. Cause they can't see that they're slicing their own net. We have a boat manufacturer down the street. And, uh, and I always tell these guys and they see the light as soon as you kind of turn it on for them, but you got to turn it on. And you say, listen to me, how many times do you think you're going to take Joe Schmo down to the same gravel over a four or five year period before he drives past the boat shop and picks one up and does it himself. I mean, you've, I've heard horror stories of guides engaging ex clients that are in water that they've showed them. I mean, to some level, all of us guides are kind of, uh, you know, we're, we're selling ourselves. We're kind of, we're kind of river whores. You know, we're, we, we kind of do that. We sell our knowledge for a price. And for these guys to engage their ex clients, that's way off. You gave them that information. You didn't show them anything new over five years. Of course, they're going to show up and do it on their own. And, and, you know, I, I don't think that there's a, you know, you go out west, you know, the shops out there because everybody's getting biting fish on, you know, a variety of, you know, small mayflies, midge and all this other stuff. And there's always this push to kind of take the bar a little higher. That bar here on the west side of Michigan has been stunted purposefully for a long time. It's been uh, nobody wants to um, look under the skirt. And there's a lot of entities around here would just soon keep the skirt down because uh, it would cost them. And it's, and, and, and you know, I, I, I don't feel reserved in having this opinion just because they, they already know my opinion. They've disagreed with me in public forums about it, um, only to agree with me completely in some pole barn while they're drinking. You know, it's, it's. Oh, so do you guide for yourself now? Oh yeah. I haven't guided for an outfitter for It's been a dozen or 15 years now. So, Oh my gosh. So how many years all in so far have you been guiding or how many years total have you guided? Uh, see, my first, well, that would be 92 was my first year guiding though. I don't know if you could count those first couple. Cause all I did was snag fish. So that's almost like a negative four for those first two. <laughs> um, 
but in 92, I, you know, I had a drift boat in when I was 16 and I started guiding when I was 17 doing the salmon snagging and took the money and yeah. So that would be, but you were out there. I think of you now as this enormous, I just, I feel like you're this big fish guy and I always associate you with night fishing. Is, is that just because of internet? and social media, or is that actually kind of your gig? I mean, I know you guide in the day, but do you do, do you do a little bit more night fishing than most? Uh, I, I could say this, and there are some fine anglers in this sport. Um, I mean, to the tune of, you know, you got, you know, Mikey Schultz with the smallmouth, what he's done with that. Uh, Blaine, what he's done with Game Changers, Muskie, the tail on that little Game Changer. I love it. Uh, <laughs> I will also tell you, I don't know anybody that's fished as much in the dark as, as I have. Just because in Michigan, it's a food group. And, and I can also say that when I got started, I mean, there was, it was an, it was kind of an old dead art here in Michigan. I could probably count on two hands how many guys were still doing it. You know, back when the Houghton Lake specials, you remember those? Um, the old no. deer mice, the, like the ugly ones, you know, just the, you know, but I mean, um, yeah, I, my wife used to make, somebody bumped into her in the supermarket. I think it was last summer, you know, and she sees her girlfriend. She's hey, how you doing? It's like, yeah, how, how are the kids? And oh, how's Tommy? And this is in the middle of the summer. And she goes, you know, if somebody crawled into bed with me before 2 a.m. every night, I wouldn't know who they are. <laughs> Just because I, it's when it's uh, summertime. It's uh, there's just so many rivers in Michigan, and I haven't gotten to them all yet. So I got a, I still got a list of stuff to do. But the night fishing is really cool. It's it's watching a brown trout be all he can be. You know the the daytime thing. We're always begging. You know he's probably under the undercut. He's probably in the jam. You know you got to coerce him or hope he's out on some lane on some random day at night though. At night, something hits the water. It's his fucking job, you know. And that's what really, that's what really gets you fired up. I mean, just uh, that possibility, that enhancement of of knowing an address or the whereabouts of a bend or two of a where, you know, we've got names for the big ones. So, like, if if it's over twenty three, twenty four inches, it gets a name, and then we kind of track it and see if he'll go the distance. And you know, they don't bite every night, but you know, if you have 60 or 80 addresses in every section and you knock on X amount of doors, somebody's going to be home and nighttime there's more people home than there isn't. So it's uh yeah, it's, it's very addicting. I mean, I love the big streamers. That's, you know, kind of my mainstay as far as, you know, the spring and the fall, even the winter, you know, the swinging and the stripping and, and all that. I don't nymph like I did when I was a younger guide. I used to do a lot of nymph trips when I was younger. I used to run a lot more egg trips, but it's, I like seeing them get mad at shit. And and you don't get that when you nymph. You know, they take they take a nymph. They take an egg. When they take a swung fly or a strip fly or a mouse, they end it. And and that's that's that next appeal. So the more you learn to kind of, you know, hit the strings, <laughs> it's all luck and witchcraft speculation and all that shit. But yeah. Okay. I have a confession to I have a confession for you. So when I met you, it would have been how it would have been, well, I've been with my husband for 10 years and I met you before I met Charles. Yeah. So it would have been somewhere 
obviously, I think 12, 13 years ago. I Something with, like uh, that is when. I was with Mikey Schultz and crew down there at, I think, one of the, was it the show? Shows. It was a show, yeah. It was a show. We were playing poker. That happens. Yeah. Uh- <laughs> yeah. And I remember you mentioning night fishing. And at the time, I'd done a little bit, and I've, I've since done a little bit more, and I've never been a fan. And I have always, I'll explain. I've always told myself, I, I just, cause I've heard for quite, for quite a while from several people that you're the guy. You are the person I'm waiting for to get to, to fish with, to have it all make sense. Oh, well. I, I, you are literally on my book of people to fish with. Of all the people, the person I have all the faith in the world is going to show me the light is you. <laughs> because, I've done it and, and I've always gone with people who are like, Oh, I think I, I think it'll work. You know, they're not really experts in that field. And then we go out, it's pitch black and fun fact, I'm afraid of the dark. So that's never, I'm getting over it, but I'm already a little bit on edge and then I can't see. And if I bring a light, they're like, no, shut the light off. You're going to scare the fish. So then it's pitch black. I can hear everything. I can't see anything. And I'm terrified of hitting myself in the head. The fly lands. I have no idea where it's landed. I can't tell if a fish has taken. Um, obviously, I'm listening, and I have heard the fish take, but it's never been overly aggressive. And I've just kind of thought to myself, you know what? Clearly, this is not what Tommy was talking about. I'll just wait till I get back to Michigan, and we'll do it properly. Indeed. So I can't fish with you. I can't fish with you right now, but I can ask you some questions. So I'm going to pick your brain if that's okay. Please. Okay. So you go to the river. You know that there was a fish home um, the day before. You had mentioned that you track them. Do they stay in the same spot? Bought every day? Do they move downstream, upstream? Are they territorial? So, so many questions. Uh, that's such a great question. So you can break it up like this: tailwaters, lakes, uh, migratory variations of the brown trout. That is pond associated, lake associated. Not Lake Michigan, but like a pond or a small lake. And then there's stream residents. Anytime you have smaller bodies of water where the bends really disassociate one area from another browns will go truly resonant it's not until they're about 17 18 inches that they get to call the ball so to speak they get to go in and like push people out and when a brown trout gets into a log jam or a certain undercut it will gather a routine um, based upon the condition and that routine is it's it's what keeps the calories coming that's what allows a stream trout to keep growing instead of falling off and withering like a bad leaf they just keep getting a little bit bigger because they learn how to feed and take that protein when it's available in those conditions. Same reason you would go, let's say um, water gets all blown out muddy. What do you do? Do you throw a nail? Heck no. You throw a big old gobstopper streamer and you rip it because you know he's out. The, the same happens at night because the cover of darkness is the same of the mud in the water. It gives them the ability to sneak up on shit. If they can't sneak up on shit, they're not going to be out there. So whenever you're clear water hunting and begging with a hopper, that's why you're catching, you know, three to five good fish a day, but you're not going to get four or five fish in the 20 inch class. That's hard to do. But with a mouse, a mouse you can, because when the water is clear, it forces that fish to feed in that window. If he can't sneak up on shit in the middle of the daytime, he's not going to hunt. But as soon as it gets dark, when you're walking down the river at night, and I prefer to not use the boat when I personal fish. I like to really get to know three to five bends of river exceptionally well uh, so that I can cover it. And then I can come down with a client and say, cast it behind that stick 
Not that one, that stick. And the reason I know that is because I've come through on foot. Now, if that feeding lane thing that I just spoke of is true, and it is, then that fish will be there every time he chooses to feed in that night window. So whether or not he's there one night to the next, he will be there one or every night out of three. That's how they work. So I love it. Do you sneak up? Do you yourself have to be really quiet? And do you wear a light or does that actually scare them? Oh, no, you got to use the force. Yeah, throw all that. That So you, you need your night eyes. It takes 40 minutes to get your night eyes back. Every time you flick that light on, it takes 40 minutes to get your eyes back to, oh, I can see over there a little now. And if you can see over there a little, now you got to, you know, that whole daytime wary brown trout thing, throw that out the way. Gone. He's not that trout anymore. Remember, like in the daytime, you know how they'll come up underneath the hopper and they'll follow it, they'll study, and they'll still say no. You know, a rainbow, he'd probably say yes, just because he doesn't want to go up and do something without getting paid. But a brown trout, brown trout, high critique. It is the brown trout because he chooses to turn away even after he's considered and spent calories to go check it out. Now, that window of opportunity that I beg for in the middle of the day for my clients, I have them seated in my skiff. I have a hide skiff and I have them seated because if they stand up, the fish spook at about 30, 35 feet away. Okay. In the Pierre Marquette, getting a caster to progress past 40 or 45 feet, I have a good list of clients that can do it. But if you're not really good at tight quarters or roll casting or any of that stuff or back casting inside of smaller windows, your ability to touch beyond 40 feet is limited. So if I have them seated, that fish now spooks at 20, 25 feet. If they make a 30-foot cast, they might catch something. As soon as they stand up, they got to make 45, 50. And I don't like them standing at all. So most of my better clients staying under the trees and stuff. Now, in the middle of the night, it's different because that window has changed from 40 to 45 feet down to about, that's so cool. You got a bug. I haven't seen a bug. I'm sorry. <laughs> she got a bug in her plate. I miss crickets so bad. Mosquito. <laughs> and it's personal because they kept me up all night. So I'm, I'm, I'm taking no prisoners. She has mosquitoes. But wait, 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 wait. So, <laughs> but even at night, you don't want them standing up? No, at night, it, it matters very little. That's what I'm saying of that 40, oh, okay. 45 feet in the daytime because of the shadows, their ability to see and all that stuff. You go out at night and that cast now needs to be 15 to 25 feet. I can pull right. the boat up within proximity of the fish that close because they're, they're comfortable. There's low light. I'm not casting a shadow with the boat or the people. They can't see the rod moving through the air. So now that 25 foot cast is, is going to pay. Not only is it going to pay, but you have to remember when it's dark, there's a certain uh, class of fish that are not going to feed anymore and a whole other class of fish that does. Brown trout, by definition, are a nocturnal trout. They're not diurnal like rainbows. They are, they are wolves that come out of woods and they hunt all night. And, uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're the best. I like them. So if you do have a light, though, does it scare them? Do you have to wait? Can you fish with a light on? I do. I, I am. I am an anti-light guy. the The biggest reason is the night eyes because it takes that long. When I was younger, guiding and and kind of naive to a lot of what what they will and won't tolerate. Um, you could see like if you ever hit them with a light when they were in the river, they would spook immediately. There was no fishing a fish. It's no different if you hit them with a light. It's no different than throwing a rock at them in the middle of the day. 
it's about the same effect. They don't, their, their eyes are adjusted for that low light. They don't want to look into that. So if you zap them and I've heard guys say red lights and green lights, oh, that doesn't spook them. Well, you just got to remember that red and green light is just tinted white light. That's all it is. So it still moves them. It's just, it's not nearly as potent as that white light. So, you know, I don't like the lights. Yeah. You know, even when I have to like tie knots, I'll use this like really dim red and I'll turn away from the river because I don't want them to see it. What about the moon? I mean, I know with hunting, learning about the moon has absolutely been a game changer. What about hunting brown trout? Is it the same thing? So, and I've heard a lot of guys try and plug the moon in on the brown trout. I can kind of see where maybe the spawning cycle might kind of uh, allow for that potential consideration. But if it is about the moon, then the highest point of the moon is the full moon. And, and I don't know how you have tidal effect on an already flipped, boiling, rolling, shooting, eddied piece of water. I just don't see where tidal effect occurs. I mean, I can't get a tide on Lake Michigan. I don't know how those fish are going to be aware. Barometric pressure, I live and die on. Live and die on the barometrics. Um, but as but, far as the beyond- moon... Beyond that, beyond pressure, I know where you're. Ta- I know you're talking about that, but I mean strictly from a feeding stance. Are they utilizing that contrast with the light above so that they can see anything moving atop the surface Ooh, of the water? Yeah. If there's a moon, if there's a moon up above, would they be able to see a mouse pattern better? Do they? Do they tend to hunt more if they can see with that moon as contrast? Quite, quite the opposite. In fact, here's the deal: my oh. best hopper bites always coincide with the full moons. Why? Why, why do they choose not to hunt in clear water? Because they can't sneak up on stuff. If you have a full moon over your head with that much light, I can see the minnows around my legs without turning a light on. And if that's true, the minnows can also see the brown trout coming. That's why the hopper bite in the middle of the day turns on so good. Because the hoppers, they can't run away. They fall in the water. They're just fair game. But when it's that dark, sense. that's okay. when the hunters do the most damage. So the blacker it is, the better it is. The only place that I've seen that rule get broken, and it's the only place that I've seen it get broken, is on the white in Arkansas. And that's just because they've got so much of that ambient light from the docks and the cottages and all that. So there's always that, you know, look at, you know, Cotter Bridge is lit up like a Christmas tree and, and you can still catch big, but that's just a natural light that's always there. So it's, it's a lot different in that, that respect that if you get into an area that already has light, I mean, you know, it's like people ask me, when will a brown trout eat a mouse best? I just tell them, I said, we've caught 30 inches plus fish on the white in Arkansas and mice in the middle of February. So the idea that they're actually seeing mice cruising across the river at that time of year, that might be a reach. But again, it's a mouse on the surface and it's a brown trout's job to deal with that in the dark. You know, whether they're feeding or not, that's a huge bite trigger when they hear that PBJ hit the water. It's just like, what was that? You know, so. Is that what you're fishing then? So mice all the time? Is there anything else that you're fishing? Uh, I would say beetle juice is my, when I fish the spay rods on the big tailwaters, I love beetle juice because the mice just don't fly as well. And you can't present them beyond 70 feet with any effectiveness because you just can't get up on top and turn the bug upstream. And you want all these fish coming in from behind. it. You don't want them slashing at them. You want them coming up. You want them being curious off the back of it. And you want to do things that would trigger that, that fish to tip. You, if people knew how many times they were noticed in the dark, it would 
blow their mind. It just knocked your socks off. I mean, and I've always wondered what it would be like to have some kind of weird, funky night vision or something like that. And to go out there, oh, shit, here he comes. And you could actually see him in all that green light and stuff. Um, that would be, it might take away a little bit of the mystery. And I kind of like all that mystery in the dark. It's kind of neat. You know, it's like, yeah. so. Do, do you see mice crossing the rivers though? I mean, I've never seen a mouse swim across the river. You come to Michigan, I'll show you a dozen on a bank crawling off the ends of the grass. Oh, everywhere. In Michigan, we have, uh, you know, there's different rivers. You know, we have like the Manistee north of here. It has mice for sure, but it's got a ton of cattail relative to the bank edge. So you do well on frogs and leeches and little bait fish imitations. And the mice work good because, again, it's a brown trout and it's a mouse and that's his job. But on the Pier Marquette, we have like in June, this, this grass that grows only at the river's edge because there's no sun or light out in the woods. All the trees keep all that canopy from, you know, but at the bank's edge, you get this nine foot tall grass with these big oats on them. And I'll pull up to, there's a dozen, I'm thinking right now, of a dozen different peninsulas where the grass is all clustered up. And I'll pull over when people just like you say, I've never seen a mouse before out here. And I'll pull up right next to the bank. I'll drop the anchor and we'll be super quiet. And you can hear the mice in the grass. And if you wait long enough, you'll see one crawl right into the boat. Here's another point. Like if you sat on the bank in that grass and sat there for 10 minutes or so, within 10 minutes, a mouse would run across your legs because you're in the grass. And there, we have two different kinds of mice. We have like a, they call it a deer mouse. And then there's a white footed deer mouse. Now the deer mouse looks like a little miniature They're the ones rat. with the big, the big bears. Don't they have big ears, the little deer mice? The deer mice do. They have a pointy kind of, they're kind of like, like miniature looking yeah, little rats. You know what I mean? Little things, yeah. Well, the, the white footed deer mouse is so cute because it's smaller. It has this snow white belly. It's about the size of a silver bow. Oh. And they're about half the size of the actual deer. So the white footed deer mouse is this cute, cozy little, and the difference Snack. between, yeah, <laughs> they got this like blade of grass, right? Now the deer mice, they'll chew off the base and pull it down and then get that oat off, right? But the white-footed deer mouse, they're so small, they can't chew through it. So they run out onto the ends, and they tip them over. And then they chew it off. But a lot of times, it's not the ground they hit. They hit the river. And when they hit the I've <gasps> oh, seen up to... right. I've seen upwards of five mice crossing one flat at once. So as far as seeing them, yes. Oh, we have a lot of mice. So, and that's... I, and I don't know if that's something to be proud of, but they're a little, you know, you know. It's a food group here, though, no doubt. Yeah. What about baby birds? Have you ever seen a brown trout eat a baby bird or try to? Yeah. we Every spring, we'll get these little mallards and wood ducks that'll nest up in the top of the, the uh, flies-only section. And, you know, if you're doing enough trips up there, you'll see the same little cluster of ducks next to each other every day. And when they're really small, you keep the count of the small ones and about every four oh, to five I days one die. of them i would die one of them's gone so and you, oh, poor you, mom you could you could blame it on the owls you could blame it on a mink you could uh it's probably a trout it's probably a trout so yeah they're uh they're, oh my gosh okay <laughs> what about musky do musky and brown trout are they both this is a really silly question but are there musky and brown trout in the pm no, uh, the, the Pure Marquette is a cold water. It never freezes. Um, it's, uh, it's all, 
it's all wild brown trout. It's all wild steelhead. There's, uh, they quit planting it back in the 90s, early 90s. Um, I was on the last brown trout plant. We did it with baskets, you know, the kind of put them right into the, but uh, yeah, we don't have the muskie. Uh, as far as a predator uh, being a predator, I don't know if there's a difference between a smallmouth predator, a brown trout predator, and a musky predator. All the patterns that we're using, uh, you know, obviously, you know, in slower water, you're going to have better action out of, you know, like game changer flies that like that little tail and stuff like that versus kind of where we're at where we're fishing more flow speeds, you know, like uh, some class twos and stuff like that. You know, you need a bug that'll either get down or or let it. Um, but, you know, predators are predator. It's all about bite triggers, kitty cat and a play toy type thing. It's, it's you know, we're, we're just tying up chicken all kinds of different ways to make it all do about the same thing. So, um, yeah, I think it's good. I will say that as the popularity of the sport grows, that action flies are, you know, like when I was a kid, you could throw a black lead headed leech into just about any jam. And to some level you'd get an audience, right? And nowadays you've got a lot of people doing it. So your sales pitch on presentation values over say some new material you're going to put behind some barbells yeah you should be thinking more about the how instead of the what as we get further and further into the sport you're going to the, the game will be bumped higher and higher and higher which is cool but it's uh you know there's so you think the fish are getting used they're getting used to seeing innovation indeed definitely maybe not Maybe not steelhead as much. They're a migratory, so they're coming in, you know, two to three times over a lifetime at best. And then they go out and feed in the lake, and if they're caught, they're probably killed. So, it, you know, it's it's irrelevant out there. But the brown trout, our residents are, I mean, terribly savvy. They are, um, you know that old saying about, you know, like, what is it, 1% of the fishermen are catching 99% of all the fish? As we keep going down the road, that's going to be more and more true because everybody seems to think that the shortcutting of the sport or some magical fly or material or rod is the answer. That is wrong. The right is the idea that you could take the fish's perspective and apply that to your own presentation. If you're looking at the fly from our perspective at the fly, you're looking at it from the wrong way. And that's, I think that's what will separate, you know, these next, I mean, there's some, there's some, you know, a lot of these kids nowadays, I mean, the download of information they have now before they're 30 is uh, super fantastic. I mean, it's all at your fingertip. I would say the meat on the bones is lost for a lot of them, though. They're, they're no longer forced to find a place. They're sent to pin. Um, they're no longer forced to create something so much as try and mimic. And, and I think, I think we'll lose a little bit of that initiative on, and everybody gets there. You stare at the water long enough, the answers start coming. But I think people are, are often looking at the wrong things for the right idea, if that makes any sense. So yeah, it, it absolutely does. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I heard that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. 
Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com waypoint. That's mintmobile.com waypoint. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com waypoint. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Eating better is easy with Factors' delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, which is the one I like, and Keto. Get started today and get after your goals. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are ready to heat and eat so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 and use the code waypointpod50 to get 50% off. That's waypointpod50 at factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 to get 50% off. Do you guide at night? Oh, I 80 trips a summer. So those, I guess on when you have a night trip coming up, you sleep in the day. Oh, I wish, you know, when I was younger, I used to pull that. I used to even pull doubles. I don't do the double. Every once in a while, if I get a client that's only in for a day or so, I'll give them the double full day, double times two thing. But, um, no, I don't, I don't guide much during the daylight. Whenever mouse season's on, it's, it's, uh, I mean, you sleep till two, you wake up, you talk to everybody you need to talk to, you make yourself something to eat and get back in the boat. Um, but that's uh, that's for the dark moon. So anything half moon into new moon and then back into the half, that's what I'm doing. Now, as soon as we get those high moon cycles, um, then I'll go to a hopper. So you're, book, you're booking around the moon. So you you are looking at the moon, but for... It's a conditional. Look, it's, you, you want it dark, right? right. But it's it's. I think when people, th- yeah, right. It's not. It's a light thing. It's not a title thing, right? It's not. Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, but yeah, that's uh, that's a really nice time of year. It's not a. It's not a hard trip too. You know, when you when you have trout that receptive in the dark, it's 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 not hard to not want to do the hopper trip. It's, you know, the hopper trip's fun. I love it. I learn the river fantastically when I can see it when the lights are on. Um, but, you know, really, if you make enough trips down the river and you get enough addresses, that's all you need for the dark. And like, if you're learning, if you want to try that, like on your own steam, the best way to do it is people are always thinking about putting a boat in the water and trying to cover three or four miles with a mouse. That is off. When I go at night, yeah, like when I'm on foot, do, when I when I fish, I cover. Wait, wait, you take the boat out at, at night? How do you not hit things? Do you have a spotlight attached to it? Hey, Dana, she's asking me how I don't hit stuff in the dark without a light. Oh no, what did you hit? <laughs> oh no, no, no. Uh, there's there's a lot of you'll hear some horror stories around here in the summertime of guys that are trying to do it. even with the lights on, they're running into shit. Um, and I'm sure April, you have a section of river that you are very intimate with you know what i mean something that you could tell me not only the size of that boulder but the freaking color of it right and if you know a body of water like that that well you don't necessarily need the light all you need is that ear and that point of reference and peripheral oh 
Peripheral vision in the dark is your best friend. Never look at something directly. Always look just away from it. That's where you'll pick it up. That's that's oh. that's a fact. I can tell you that. If you try staring at something in the dark, you'll never find it. But if you look just away from it, you'll pick it up out of the corner. How interesting. Okay. All right. So you are rowing in the dark, no lights. Correct. Yeah. And I haven't taken anybody what an out experience. of my Yeah. It's like hunting with Ray Charles, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. Um, I have a question for you about Michigan. Mm-hmm. Why are Michigan fish so different? And I found, even I was writing an email the other day explaining to somebody about, oh, we were just comparing, oh, that's right, he's fishing in Ohio. And I was saying, you know, fish in Ohio are just a little different than the Pacific Northwest fish and Michigan fish. And I realized I lump Michigan fish with Pacific fish uh, or, you know, the coastal fish, but it's the only Great Lakes fishery that I lump together with the um, Pacific Northwest. Well, that's swell of you, but I would would tell you that a steelhead is really only a steelhead that if he goes to the ocean, I think that's fair. Okay. Um, (laughs) You won't hear, you will not hear me argue that, but compared to New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Ontario, the Michigan fish are entirely different in with what I've experienced anyway. Uh, oh, our, we have a great wild fishery in, in, in Michigan. Our, our fishery is, I mean, it's, it's like all the Ohio streams and all that down. That's all, that's the little manistee strain fish that they've planted down there. And that little manistee is north of here about 10 minutes. So, um, as far uh, as so the, they're not wild there, they've all, they're not wild over there. We never had wild steelhead. These were all introduced, uh, some time ago, even before the King salmon. So no, no, I know, but is Mich so? Do they still s- wait? So yeah, okay. So why is Michigan different to Ohio? Uh, well, th- don't think for a second that we don't have some fisheries still getting plants. The Grand River still gets like fifty or two. Or no, they get two hundred fifty thousand a year. I think the Manistee gets fifty thousand. The Pure Marquette doesn't get any plants. The Little Manistee doesn't get any plants, and they've factored in there's something like a forty percent overall. So I. I could be wrong there. I think it's like 40% overall on the west side of Michigan now is wild. And, and, and they found that, you know, these streams, and this is one thing that we've heard down at the, the meetings in Lansing, um, that there is a, a wild fish push as of the last couple few years from the DNR, which is great to hear. Um, but it's been a long time coming because we've had these hatcheries in play and they get a lot of funding, a lot of funding. And I think a lot of the lifelines in the current DNR kind of have their fingers so deep into the hatcheries that it's, I, I'm sure you already know where I'm going with that. You know, it's hard to, it's hard to get the hatcheries out once they're already involved. And, uh, and there's a lot of talk about it and everybody likes wild fish. And, you know, it was wild that we had to quit uh, planting King salmon several years ago because the alewife ball was in a crash. And then they found out that 70% in that last year before they planted was all wild out there. The fish were bigger. They were stronger. They caught 40 pounders that year. Um, you know, the, the steelhead here, I mean, you know, every year you'll hear three or four fish over 20 pounds here. Um, you know, three years ago, there was like a dozen over 20 pounds taken on the West side. Um, these are steelhead. So they're, they were obviously getting bigger and they started eating the alewives and all this other stuff. So the fishery is much better off we don't live and die on our plants. I mean, if you quit planting Michigan, five rivers would still be just fine. What about the Muskegon? Because that's the one that knocked my socks off. The the Muskegon's a little, uh, you know, 
if 20 years ago, the Muskegon was a colder fishery. Now it's getting a little smallmouthy, and they do have a wild return of fish there, no doubt. But they also get a fair amount of plants, too. So, uh, you know, and that fishery gets a fair amount of jet sled pressure with the center pins and the gear. And there's a lot of put and take. And that's kind of what these hatcheries have kind of built the model around, which is these kind of, you know, if you buy a license, you should be allowed to harvest fish. We do have a good, I'm not, you know, and if everybody wants to call them big lake rainbows, I'd actually be more fine with that. Because then we'd be looking at some kind of Jurassic Lake situation where we're catching, you know, 15 to 20 pound rainbows. I'm, as far as the better fishing, as far as for steelhead, one of my great clients, Tony Cummings, uh, uh, took me for a, a trip out to the North Umpqua a couple of summers ago to fish dries for the summers, just before they closed it down because of the heat and the forest fires and all that. And uh, I got a couple of those to go. And I, and you, you know, you can tell the ocean fish just have a lot more dodging they have to do. Whereas here in the Great Lakes, they're kind of the top of the food chain, save the kings you know, the moment they're out there so that they don't have, they don't get that kind of ocean strong to them. You know what I mean? That said, I've bloodied a dozen knuckles in my boat this year. If you go down and hit them at the lake, they're blue. You can read quarters through their fins and they will show you seven gears. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I can't help but like a fishery that just isn't overrun yet by, you know. I think I'd heard that there's a certain point let me see if I can get my wording here. There's a certain point, um, as in there's a certain month where anglers will refer to the Great Lake steelhead as lake run rainbows versus steelhead. There's like a cutoff point, but I, I think Jermaine was telling me about it, but I can't remember what it was. Yeah, I don't. To, because to me, they are all lake run rainbows. Out of I'm, respect I'm, for I'm with people, you. I say, I say totally steelhead, you. but you know. Yeah, and the Michigan, uh, Michigan calls them steelhead. And again, they don't have an ocean. We have a great lake that's as big as an ocean. And no, they don't reside in the rivers except to, you know, come up in the fall to feed. They, uh, a small percentage of that or a third of that percentage will hold over the winter. And we've already, ha- we already have fish spawning right now in January. Uh, the summer run steelhead got up about two weeks ago. Um, so as far as that goes, I would agree that these are a lake run rainbow fish. We, I mean, to call them steelhead would be a reach. You know, it's just like, I mean, draw a line between what we have in a Lake Iliamna rainbow or a Jurassic Lake rainbow. You know, once it's coming out of freshwater into freshwater, it's, I think that's where the, the click is, you know, so. Right. Um, back to Browns, because I don't know if you know, but this entire conversation behind your head, you've had the most spectacular footage playing behind you. And it's just, it's, it's actually getting me really hyped up. Oh, that's be honest. He plays that Jensen <laughs> stuff whenever I'm in the shop because he says that the music, I, I love those, those folks are just, they knock my socks out. They just go out there and catch 10 brown trout over like seven oh, pounds. Footage is next level. They give each so other beautiful. a hug and I just, I want to live in your world. Can you adopt me? Or, yeah. you know, <laughs> so Totally. But while I'm watching these beautiful fish behind you, they've just got my, it's got my brain percolating. I'm, I've definitely got my mind set on brown trout right now. Go, so go. have you, do you ever do the New Zealand style where you stand far behind them with a long leader and you're sight fishing and you want to cast that nymph, you know, two feet in front of them and the line just behind them. Do you do that New Zealand style fishing there? Uh, yes and no. Uh, some of the, like if you wanted fish of that 20 to 25 inch caliber in that respect, 
you would have to play on rivers. And, and that's not to say if you gave it enough time, you couldn't do it on the PM. You know what I mean? If you gave it all day, you could probably get a couple of fish, 18 to 21, working upstream and stuff like that. I will tell you that our small cricks where the boats are not, where there's no canoes and stuff like that, we have so many freakish miles of cricks in the state. Now, we also have a ton of trees. So like in New Zealand, when you guys want to walk up the bank and kind of spot fish, that works really good because you guys don't have a forest between you and the bank edge. Here we do have that. So a lot of times it's better for us to walk the river just directly upstream and spot as we go. And, you know, there's times in the springtime when there's still enough tannin in the water, you can take big streamers as well as hoppers and assorted mayflies and, and nymphs, you know, like a little pheasant tail or a soft tackle. But you can take a streamer when there's enough tannin in the water and throw it upstream to a fish that you can see on a bar and watch them chase it to your ankles. That tunnel vision they get on a streamer is pretty fantastic. Wait, so upstream going – because we have – in New Zealand, there are definitely smaller fish. There are fish in every single river. There are certain areas of New Zealand where it doesn't matter if it's a ditch, a creek that's a foot wide, a forested river, a wide open vast river. Everywhere you turn, there are fish in the water. You're killing me um, here. And you're, so, just kill, you're killing me here. Oh, I swear on the South Island, on the West Coast, it was like nothing I'd ever seen before. I mean, some of these fish are impossible. They are so switched on, right? Especially, I'm not kidding, in, in a foot of water, they're very, very switched on and they're huge. Um, so managing to get your fly to them is, I'm certainly not skilled enough to do it. But um, on these rivers, you're telling me that I could walk up, I could walk behind them, because we'll do that too. We'll walk in the middle of the river up, you know, slowly hunting all that. I could fish a streamer upstream and have it drift down to me with all that slack. How, how does, how would that look? You've got me all excited here. So like if you're fishing a streamer upstream, obviously we, we fish a very aggressive. We're not fishing like woolly, I mean, you could fish a woolly boogie. But we're fishing more like high action flies. So these are like drunken disorder, oh, leaves, okay. small deceivers. And this is uh, as close as you're going to get to throwing a crankbait with a fly rod. We're throwing a sink tip, I short gotcha. leader, okay. yeah, and yeah. we move it down. Now, if we're fishing the dry flies, you can like move up that same bar and you can spot a nice trout in the back. You can see his tail right in the back of the jam, present right above the jam, watch him come right up out of it. So the water gets very clear here in the summer so that you can apply it, especially in the cricks. Um, if you wanted to play that game for some of the really big fish here in Michigan, it is a tough one, only because in those same section, there's an amount of boat traffic that always has that fish semi off the lane. He's not on the lane. You know how like in New Zealand, you can go up into a section of the river and the only people that it's seen are people that are walking up and down. And here, you're as likely, if you were to try that approach, you would as likely have two or three boats go by you throwing grasshoppers in the same Oh, so okay, it, it's, totally it's, different. It's, it's, a, it's a different. Now, as soon as you crawl up into the cricks where the canoes and boats can, there's a whole cool world of, you know, I, I had a day this summer, which is, I've never done this before in my career. So I got a brook trout, a steel, I'm not going to call it a steelhead, we'll call it a lake rainbow. And I got a brown trout, and the brown trout was 25 and a half inches, but I got all three on a dry fly in a day. And that was one of the coolest things I've done on a fly. So. It's the slam. Yeah. Yeah, it was kind of broke. Okay, trout. so you're not you're not dead drifting a woolly bugger. You're actually actively fishing a fly back to you. Oh yeah, full cat and mouse. Like the tunnel vision is so extreme too. Like like let's say I got within like 15 feet of behind him, that lateral line would start picking me up even if I was waiting up there, right? But if I notice him before I hit that window, 
I can, you know, that tunnel vision that fish gets when they're, you know, like if they come up for a dry fly, they're always on there unless they're just, you know, one after the other drunk on them. Um, they'll, they'll study it and they'll consider it and they'll look for the air when they're on the streamer. It's a little bit of that wary brown trout thrown on the water. I've had them bump into my legs trying to get the streamer because they can't see my legs. They're so focused on the streamer. All right. So that's what's the furthest you've seen. Have you seen fish move far for a streamer or for a fly in general? Five, six yards, seven yards. Oh yeah. The big ones like a, Gosh, we'll run two handed approaches on the tailwaters where we'll, you know, the salt water, tuck it up under the arm, you know, there's burn it across the surface and you don't actually see the fish until he goes, but you'll just, you'll be burned across the, just a big blow up. Keep it moving. Keep it moving. And you keep it moving. And the <laughs> as, fish soon as, you, as soon as you said that the video behind your head had a huge boof of a fish blowing up. That was so perfect. Oh my gosh. Um, okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited right now to go fishing. Have you found in your experience that, um, rainbow trout are more likely to take a swung fly and brown trout are more likely to take a strip fly? That's true. I'll give you that. I I wouldn't say it's, why do you think that is? It's not a rule, but I found in New Zealand, especially that I personally catch more fish, more rainbows on a swung fly and more browns on a strip. And I didn't know if it was just a location thing or if it is a species thing. I always like to think of all trout as college graduates, all trout, rainbow trout and brown trout, but the rainbow trout went to the community college and the brown trout went to Harvard. Is that the best way? Okay. I like this. Yeah. So that's, that's between, and that's why you'll get errors from a rainbow. Why would that make a brown trout more likely to take a strip fly if they went to Harvard? Because you gotta, you gotta kind of, you gotta pull his pants down. You gotta make him go into that, that kind of that predatory pounce. You don't want him to think and consider. You want him to sack and attack. You don't, you, you, you don't want to give that brown trout the ability to critique you. If you give him that time and that interval, man, you better, you better be pretty good at that vice. But if you, if you hit him at his, his base, which is his job. And again, between rainbows and brown trout, I would always put the brown trout as more carnivorous one. Rainbows like to forage and pack and feed and nymph away, right? Brown trout just go out and assume at night, eat the damn rainbow that was, you know, nymphing all day. So you, 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 it's like a different station between the two of them. So the idea that you could fish to a rainbow better with the flashy swing and kind of cater to that more kind of cure. Oh, that looks like fun. I'll go hit that versus a brown trout going, not on your best day, sailor. You know, so it's, it's right. It's, it's, <laughs> that's what it feels like. And, and that's not to say we haven't caught some nice brown trout. Every once in a while, that post-spawn bite, we get deep winter, like well into December and January, where you'd be swinging through a hole and you'll get one of these big residents, you know? And the only reason he took it is because if he doesn't eat something, he's not going to make it through the winter. They're, they're kind of post-spawn. They look like flat tires, you know, they're used up and they yeah. got to get the calories before that water temperature hits 32 degrees because the steelhead, they didn't, they don't really care about the, the temps. I've caught, I've had those steelhead chase and bounce their heads off the boat, in 31 degree water. The brown trout at about 38, 37, you got to, that sales pitch has got to slow down and get really kind of local to a certain area because they don't want to chase it like at 50 degree you know i've seen them do some pretty crazy stuff but that's when they're all fired up and they're nice and warm when it's cold like this the brown trout you can it's a different fish so how do you ethically manage that because you don't want to burn all of their energy considering they're trying to stay 
you know, keep their fat reserves? Yeah. So the post-spawn, pre-spawn, spawning brown trout. So, so here's where I'm at on that. As far as anybody that fishes any drops an anchor and starts fishing bedded fish, I think there's a special place in trout hell for you. I just, I think that's off in a lot of ways, whether it's a steelhead, a brown trout, a rainbow trout. If that fish is up there procreating and you start nymphing away and trying to play mouth hockey, make it eat something, that's, that's off. Now, if I'm to say that I am not fishing for brown trout when I'm in a river fishing for steelhead, I don't know how you can say that either. So what I would tell people is that any brown trout willing to chase a streamer when I have, you know, two to 4,000 per mile is worth getting that chase in whatever form he may or may not. That's me presuming that that fish is or isn't spawning. How would I know that? I'm simply throwing at trouty water and something moves out for it. Now, I would say that a spawning fish is far less likely to eat a fly. They're very likely to give it chase and then turn away once they've done their job, which is fend it off. Any trout that's not actively spawning could be in the game for a cast. So do I think you should be throwing at bedded fish? No. Do I think you should stop trout fishing because uh, the trout are spawning? No, that would be like saying don't fish steelhead in the spring because they're spawning. That's another reach. You can't say that, okay, well, those are spawning and the rest of them aren't. You have these guys that will try and argue, oh, I'm not fishing the gravel. I'm fishing the pocket behind it. Now you're still fishing the gravel, you know. So I think the argument isn't so much as the time of year you choose to engage whatever fish, because not all brown trout spawn every year. So the idea that there isn't a population of fish that isn't even in the spawning cycle, I mean, that's – and then here's another one. A lot of guys will say, well, I won't fish brown trout when they're spawning but I, I love fishing them when they're done spawning. And so here's my argument. So you're saying to me that you're not willing to throw a fish at it in its prime while they're chasing all of each other around. You're not willing to throw a fish at or a fly at that fish when he's in his prime well off and spawning and chasing each other around and he gives your fly a little chase, so be it, right? But you're telling me it's okay to go make a cast at that fish when he's a flat tire on the verge of death going into winter starving. That's what I'm wondering. I, I don't know where that argument comes. You, you can't make that argument. You know, in the same respect, if they were that concerned, you could say, well, I'm not going to fish the pre-spawn because I might hinder that fish's ability to keep feeding before he spawns. I mean, you're, you're going to run into this with a lot of different people. Again, if you're nymphing fish on a bed, if you're not nymphing fish on a bed, then I don't know there's any wrong time to engage any one fish. You know, procreating, there's two or three fish up there getting it done. You know what I mean? Let them get it done. They're going to make more for you. And and the rest of the river is wide open. Any fish using deep water, any fish using the holes, the inside sandbars, those fish are all on feeding lanes. They're not actively spawning. They're willing to a fly, which that, that warrants a cast. That does warrant a cast. So I think. So what's the plan for you? Because how old are you now, Tommy? Uh. 49 in a month, 49 in a month. Wow. You're looking at big five Oh soon. Yeah. 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 I, I, I don't plan on doing it. I, I never really aspired to be much beyond this. So. Well, you're obviously doing a great job. Do you, do you have anything in particular that you're up to that I should be asking you about? Mm. Hmm. Same old, same old, just, uh, fishing, tying, getting from one season to the next and try and keep my head down a little bit more than I used to. 
Why is that? Hey, you just get six tails. You know about that. You know, you, you post enough six stuff. Tails. And, well, I've got like, uh, there's, there's two other fly shops in town. And a lot of those, you know, when I came up, you, you aspired to wind up at the fly shop because the outfitter would call you and then you would get those trips and, and all that. And I think, I think the way the fly shops work now is it's, it's actually different than when I came up. Like when, when I came up, you always kind of paid your veterans that fair share. Like if they wanted to go into a section, you didn't, you said, okay, I'll go, I'll go somewhere else. Right. And nowadays you have a bunch of kids that are basically learning how to fish, being paid to guide so that the lodge or the uh, shop can take the 30 to 40% off that guy's salary to call himself a guide. And they're teaching people. And, you know, to some level, you know, a fishing guide is a representation of all fishing guides. And I think that sometimes we're, we're skipping a lot of the what you should know instead of how much revenue can we make over that summer or that season? You know what I mean? And I will tell you that a lot of the kid guides around here, they don't really work outside of those shady seasons and they fish plenty on the off season, but they don't have the capacity to teach anybody how to cast. So might as well just give them that chuck and duck rod and let them go on the gravel, take the tip. That's the mold that's kind of being resonated around here. And it's, I've already spoken as loud as I'm going to speak about it without getting my, you know, tires slashed at boat launches yeah. and what have you. So, but even though your head's down, you're still taking clients, right? Like, how can people reach you? Uh, yeah, no, I the word of mouth thing is I'm I'm sure you're yeah. I mean, that's that gets you the client you want, anyways, right? You don't want to just you know if if you want to learn how to nymph, I've I've got a guy for you. I can hook you up. And if you're a referral for one of my really good regulars and you want me to teach them, I might be able to find a way to get one of those rods in the boat for 20 minutes. But, you know, as I get older, the the way I want to guide is the way I'm going to guide. It's not going to be, yeah, you know, I've, you know. I think you'll be getting some phone, some phone calls. Do they hate, do, should people hit you up on Instagram? I know fish, is it fishwhisperer.com? Yeah, my wife likes it. Uh, so the, uh, the <laughs> I fish, love it. yeah, she I think that's a little cocky myself. So, uh, the fishwhisperer.com is the one that we, I think the email is coming in on. And, uh, yeah, she's got it all hooked up on the techno end of that, but, um, <laughs> on the confuser. On the confuser. Those things are. I've never heard anybody call it a confuser till this, just this morning. And it started my whole day off right. Thank you for that. Well, it, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, I am just, uh, yeah, I can tie knots fast. I can get the flies spun, but. Everything else, I'm probably a real distant second on. So, <laughs> so moving forward, because I'll, I'll wrap, I'll, we'll wrap it up. I'll get. Um, I can't believe I'm wrapping up a podcast at eight fourteen in the morning. Thank you for the early start. Um, is there anything that you would like to add or to ask me that I haven't covered? Because I feel like I could pick your brain forever. I know I'm going to finish recording and go. Ah, why didn't I ask? This, this, and this. I'm just going to have to come uh, out and fish with you. Well, Twist my you, arm. Well, you should do that anyways. But just the same, the uh, the brown trout questions, I thought you were on the right uh, pail there. If I were to – yeah. 
So you remember that whole thing we used to hear when we were young? I don't think it meant as much as it does now, but you know those three keys to fly fishing? You know, everybody, what are the three keys to presentation, presentation, presentation? I mean, when I was younger, you could say that just, do you remember like when you used to throw a stream around the water, would hit the water, and before you stripped, a fish would come for it? You know, sometimes just, depending. Yeah, like we used to have like you throw it in front of the jam. You didn't even have to make a strip. Just the opportunity got that fish out, and you know what I mean. And today, I've just noticed how many brown trout are willing to chase versus just kill. And I really think that's I think that's the avenue needed to. We just got to be a little bit more aware of, of of the game as a whole instead of trying to put it on somebody else's backgammon or or material or. Yeah, I think that's I think that's the next evolution in fly fishing. It's not about having um, a lighter rod or a, a different tapered line. I mean, we've covered a lot of those tapers now. We're still playing with the polymers, but it's you know, triangle's been around for four years. It's going to be around for another forty more. And so, as far as all those applications, if you have these finite pieces of water, which is they're they're not changing in size, you could argue that the fishing is getting tougher, not easier. Um, yeah, if you're if you're not fishing better, you're probably you're you know with the fly fishing thing, right? Until you know it, you can't become creative with it because before you know it, you're going to fight it. The cast, the idea, the confidence—all those things—you don't get to go to the shop and pick that up. For there's no caught, you know. You have to know how to do those. So once you're aware of how to do some of these things, then you get to be creative. In that creativity, I think, is where all the learning is done. It's, it's that process of getting, you know, and some folks just like to go for a boat ride, look at the birds, and, and I'll tie a couple more knots. And that's a fine guy trip. Those are pretty easy. I roll out. Um, but, but a lot of folks are getting into this, buying all the gear, and I think they're, they're subtracting, which is the big piece, is the awareness. They want to read about it. They want to hear about it and instead of uh, get it. You got to get it to have fun with it. You got to get it. You know, you got to know it somewhat or you're just going to fight. You see, you want to know what I get off on as a guy nowadays. I mean, the fishing's great and all that. And I, I, I like seeing a big brown trout more than the next guy, I assume. But I think as I gotten older, where I really kind of get off on being a guide is watching the lights come on for somebody. You know what I mean? That moment when you say, oh, man, he felt that low, didn't he? He felt that cat. Look at where that went. That confidence, there's no words that I can say or any tin cup and I can do with that rod that's ever going to give him that until he gets it himself. But once he gets it, that's a window that he hasn't been allowed to look through yet. And once he feels it once, it's hard not to know that that happened and he'll work to get that. That's that awareness. I think that's the awareness. It's literally like building a house. I mean, you can't buy the foundation. You need the foundation, but you can't really excel until you start turning on lights, decorating, looking out windows. It really is, if you want to look at it as an analogy, it is like building a house. Yeah. No, it is. It's just a shell, and and, and that's a good way to put a Sims jacket on it. But, I mean, the, the shell is... It's like all the guys walking around checking duck gear, dressed up like fly fishermen, but they're out there playing mouth hockey, doing high fives and hero shots. And I'm just wondering, the fish didn't even eat it, you guys. I mean, where are you guys at with this sport? And I think that's the direction we're trying to we're trying to oversimplify it. I'm really anti Titan tapers. I'm not a big fan of those. Uh, Skagits, you know, I can kind of see if I was using you know 12 foot of T14 or T17. Yeah, I can I can see where a Skagit would come online. But here in Michigan, we're on seven and a half. 10 foot tops, you know, and these guys are coming out here with these lead pipe skagits. And I'm just like, 
you're not you're not seeing this. You're not seeing it for what it is. We need to we need to make this more about the presentation than trying to dish it to the other side of some BC river with mono. And uh, yeah, so I'm I'm just rambling now. So no, look, I love it. We're gonna wrap it up. Um, so people can reach you by going to thefishwhisperer.com. Uh-huh. You're still on social media, thankfully. And um, how are your bookings? How's this year? Do you have any room? Twenty twenty three. Uh, oh yeah, no, I've got room in 2023. I just, uh, yeah, the rest of this, uh, this month is kind of off, but yeah. Awesome. Well, I'm absolutely dead serious on coming out to fish with you. So I will give you ample warning when I come out. Mm-hmm. My daughter's getting older now. So my traveling starting to ramp back up again, especially now that this whole COVID saga is winding down. And, um, I would love to get out on the boat for some night fishing. Anytime you say when me and Dan, will put the boat in the water. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show and um, let's fish together soon. April. Thank you so much for having me And April. I'd like to say one more thing before we done. Thank you for what you've done uh, for the sport on the women. ends. I have seen more women into this sport because of, they dropped your name a lot. I don't know if you know this, but a lot of gals are into this because you just, you made it look shiny. So good for you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. Thank you. Well, they look better um, holding awesome. the fish too. You know, the guys are all ugly. <laughs> They're shiny too. <laughs> Let me wrap it up and then hang on. Don't hang up. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. Tune in next week when I sit down with Eric Paulson. Eric Paulson.